Welcome back to another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip. I am your host, Benji Backer, president and founder of the Conservation Coalition. And we are here in Wilmington, Delaware, with one of the most bipartisan and iconic senators that is currently serving this country right now, Chris Coons, senator of Delaware. Chris, welcome to the podcast and, and tell us exactly where we are. Uh, Benji, welcome uh, to Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, my offices are just upstairs. Uh, my church is literally right here. Uh, the center of downtown Wilmington, Rodney Square, is right there. Uh, you are literally in the middle of it all, or at least to those of us who think Wilmington is the center of the universe. And I'm thrilled you've come to make a visit to Delaware a part of your nationwide tour. Uh, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to you in person. I've followed your work, and uh, I am really excited for our conversation today. I am too, and I think it just speaks volumes to the fact that you're even open to having it. You know, there are a lot of people in today's world that wouldn't be willing to sit down, especially in what is no, you know, for this is somewhat public, uh, you know, in a public space with someone of a cross, you know, ideological spectrum. Why is bipartisanship so important to you? And can you talk a little bit about your incredible work with the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Act, or, well, that, and the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, and why that has been so important to you? Sure. Um, part of it is um, where I'm from, and I mean that in almost every sense of the word. Uh, I'm from Delaware, um, a state that only has three counties, and one county is overwhelmingly Democratic. Another county goes back and forth, is sort of evenly divided. Another county is deeply Republican, um, or to put it differently, liberal, moderate, and conservative. And in one day, you can do a public event in all three counties. And in one day, you can be um, in an engaged conversation with Delawareans who have very different views about um, the role of the federal government, about the balance between uh, private sector and public sector, about the importance of different issues. And um, I think that has led to a state where uh, people listen to each other more, where it's more human scale. Uh, I came up in politics where um, the phrase the Delaware way was widely used to mean uh, that we listen to each each other, we respect each other, and we work things out. Um, my wife and I are from similar backgrounds. We were both raised in Republican families. I was actually active in the college Republicans when I was uh, a student at Amherst College now many years ago. Um, but I cast my first vote uh, for president for a Democrat um, after spending a semester in Kenya and sort of looking at the United States from a, a world perspective and thinking about what the most pressing issues were at the time. Um, I changed my registration, but I've never lost a sense of respect for my own family members uh, who were and are um, active members of the Republican Party. Uh, obviously, um, some of these issues have changed over time. Uh, Delaware was a state when I was young where uh, moderate, uh, sort of northeastern, um, conservation-oriented uh, Republicans were the majority and controlled most of the state uh, government. Um, my first race for the U.S. Senate was initially against Mike Castle. Uh, congressman Castle uh, was a two-term governor, nine-term congressman. Um, he and Senator Bill Roth, for whom I first interned in the Senate, um, were conservationists. Bill Roth was very proud of his um, long-time work defending the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. 
Uh, and uh, we talked before this uh, podcast began about um, the significant legacy of Governor Russell Peterson, who was a conservationist and a Republican and later the president of the Audubon Society. Um, so I think I come out of a context where uh, both in my family, in my church, in my community, um, there was a long tradition of respecting each other despite differences in registration and of that serving a positive purpose. Um, Delaware has become more blue, but not exclusively so. Um, there are still quite a few um, active and elected Republicans in city, county, and state government up and down Delaware. That's led me as a senator to be interested from the day I got there to follow my predecessor, Joe Biden. Um, in having real relationships. Uh, Joe, uh, former Vice President Biden, uh, urged me from my first day as a senator to build real friendships rooted in respect. And I got to see Joe do that with John McCain. Um, senator McCain um, was in many ways uh, both a colleague, a friend, and a role model for me. Um, I um, am honored to have his office now, something that Cindy helped make happen after his passing. And I got to be present at the National Constitution Center when John received the Liberty Medal. And for anyone who hasn't watched that, um, it was a speech that John gave at a stage in his life where he knew the end was coming. And he was reflecting on our place in the world and on what it means to work together. Um, <laughs> Um, I raced up there um, for that ceremony. It was cold. It was in the winter. Um, and Bob Casey sat next to me. The two of us got there a little late because there'd been a vote in the Senate. Um, but Joe Biden was who John had asked to introduce him. Um, Joe gave long and very compelling remarks about their relationship and their travels together around the world, and the ways in which, although they really disagreed, and I mean really disagreed, on a couple of really important foreign policy issues, it was abundantly clear in listening to these two seasoned senior senators talk about each other, that they didn't just know each other briefly and in passing in sound bites on the floor, that they knew each other's families, they knew each other's background, and they'd traveled together and come to respect each other. Um, and I thought John's remarks that night, uh, Senator McCain's remarks that night about our place in the world and the importance of respect and bipartisanship, I mean, really touched me. And I came home and shared that experience with my wife. And as is often the case, um, she gave me another assignment. Um, she looks at me and she says, that's your job now. And I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, you're telling me that you are deeply saddened by seeing this moment that was inspiring, but it, that is clearly passing, um, given John's, at that point, uh, prognosis and given that Joe had left the Senate and at that point was not expected to run again. Um, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, it is your job to go find a partner like John McCain among the younger, newer members of the Senate so that somehow 20 years from now, some other young person can look at the two of you and say, how is it that you and Todd Young, you and Mike Braun, you and Marco Rubio, you and managed to build a relationship out of which came something really good. And I intentionally have gone about doing exactly that. And my first conversation with Senator Mike Braun was about that evening and about that relationship. And although we are from very different states and backgrounds and values, frameworks, it's produced some real, I think, promising fruit so far in the Climate Solutions Caucus.
I mean, that really hits home with me in so many ways. And there's so much in inspiring content there. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin and I got inspired by John McCain as well. That was what drew me to conservatism. I remember sitting 10 years old on my couch watching John McCain debate President Obama. And first of all, the conversations were a lot different than they are on the debate stage these days. But that kind of courageous common sense approach that Senator McCain brought was really inspiring to me. And I remember, you know, Russ Feingold represented Wisconsin at the time and Russ Feingold and John McCain were really good friends as well. And I was just inspired by that because I have, I have liberal family members and conservative family members. And I grew up in a town that was pretty 50, 50 in a state that's 50, 50, uh, and pretty much swings the outcome uh, of elections these days. How did we lose sight of, I mean, we're going to talk about the environment, we're going to get there, but this is too important. How did we lose sight of this ability to sit down with one another? Obviously, you're doing it still, but to me, and I think to the broader public, you're one of the few. And how did we get to a place where we can't even have those conversations? And, and honestly, we're rewarding the people who are the most divisive. That's right. And I, you know, look, there's structural reasons, there's cultural reasons. Um, there's a whole lot of things that have changed about the Senate over 20 years. Um, but I am um, convinced that this is our last best chance. This, this election, this coming Congress, um, to return to rewarding and recognizing uh, compromise, bipartisanship, a willingness to work together, the whole reason we have um, a democratic system, um, a republic, and a congress is to manage conflict. Um, as someone whose ancestor fought in the Civil War and who at my father's suggestion went and visited Antietam um, soon after he passed three years ago and as I was contemplating the division in our country today, we have come through incredibly difficult and dark and divisive periods in the Senate and in our nation's history, and the costs and consequences were profound. Um, and I don't take lightly the significance of our division today. When the senators of the 1850s stopped being able to hear each other or work together or respect each other, and instead literally resorted to physical violence on the floor of the Senate, it was the signal that the country itself was about to be engulfed um, by a generationally transformational violence as someone whose family fought for abolition. I will tell you it was a just cause. Um, but it, your question, how did we get here? How did this happen? As Daisy said to Buchanan in The Great Gatsby, slowly and then all at once. And we have to pay attention to the ways in which um, all the systems that surround people in politics or in community service or in advocacy are moving towards the margins. So um, how you get attention in terms of cable TV and the disaggregation of media and the rising power of new me means of communication like Twitter, like social media. Um, the disaggregation of the power of parties, which tended to bring the extremes towards the center and now it's super PACs that really drive uh, funding in the electorate. Um, things in which our culture, frankly, has become coarser and um, we are responding faster and in shorter ways to people who we um, are comfortable treating as two-dimensional caricatures. Um, at the end of the day, um, both parties in 2016 
demonstrated that that there were there were strong candidates for the presidency who were populists and whose entire message was the system's rigged the country's broken elect me and i'll burn it down and we'll build something completely new um, so it is not unique to one party or the other um, underlying all of this is a culture of isolation, of desperation. Why have we seen uh, an opioid addiction crisis um, that has just, I mean, taken tens of thousands of lives a year now for nearly a decade because of a sense of a loss of connectivity, of engagement, of opportunity, and of purpose? Um, and we've lost a lot of the social infrastructure, the connection, to communities of faith, to employment with purpose, to a chance to get ahead by just playing by the rules and working hard. So um, this happens slowly, but its emergence into an urgent national issue has been relatively recent. Part of why I am so passionate about Joe Biden and endorsed him on the first day and have fought really hard for him is that Joe in his bones believes in the American people as a whole and believes in respecting and trying to work with and listening to people with very different views. That's what came from being a senator in the old Senate. And there are people in my party who have dismissed him as naive, out of date. Um, didn't you learn the lesson of McConnell, you know, beating the stuffing out of Obama and blocking things on the floor? And um, we have an opportunity here, perhaps, um, to hear each other and to respect each other. Um, I am in the middle of my own reelection where I had a primary opponent um, who criticized me sharply for being the bipartisan Delaware Way guy. I have been on the phone directly with three Republican senators in the last 48 hours trying to figure out a way through our current uh, moment. Um, and I'm not going to stop trying. I mean, at, at some point, either the people of Delaware will get sick of this and decide they want a more populist or a more um, marginal or, you know, uh, they want a solution that is less bipartisan um, or the Senate itself will cease to function. But we don't have an alternative. There isn't another way towards a sustainable, legitimate solution to our biggest problems than bipartisanship. Our structure demands compromise. Well, I completely agree. And I think it's almost, it's proven. And actually, when I announced that we were meeting with each other, we, I don't know if you saw them, but we received tweets that were saying, if I was a Republican in Senator Chris Kuhn's state, I would vote for him. Uh, or if I was a Democrat, and I get that all the time too, if, I, you know, if, I, if you were running in my state, I, I as a Democrat would vote for you. That's not popular amongst the bases. And the base doesn't necessarily like that on either side because they feel like that's too squishy. But that is how things get done. If you look back at history, the best policies and the best outcomes came from some sort of overlap, some sort of compromise. And that's why I think what you're doing is so important. Now, on climate specifically, it's even more important because it is an issue that there is a lot more overlap on than people think. Of course, there are special interests and there's always going to be, you know, a, a difference in opinion on how we can get there. But you support market-based solutions to environmental challenges as a Democrat. I support market-based solutions as a conservative. And I can guarantee you that, you know, we would agree on a lot of those types of policies. In fact, we are really excited about most of the policies that you've co-sponsored and or introduced. 
And you've really started to hit home at that aspect by trying to work with senators like Mike Braun and Todd Young and Marco Rubio. Is there a trend in the right direction on climate? And do you think that that can be a breakthrough issue for kind of this bipartisanship that we both agree is so important? Um, I am convinced there is. Um, let me go back one moment and then try to briefly come back to this. So um, for decades, um, no politician would go wrong by saying, I'm going to get tougher on crime. No, I'm tougher on crime. No, I'm going to, right? And as a result, we ended up with a national culture of mass incarceration. The war on drugs just ratcheted up and up and up. And in my early years, um, my, my father did prison ministry when I was a child as a volunteer in the congregation I grew up in. And I remember noticing and being troubled by, there were no voices um, in the national debate in the 80s and 90s speaking up for, we're overdoing this. <laughs> we're, we're incarcerating millions of people and we're sentencing people to very long uh, terms. And it's hard for me in trying to explain this to my college age kids now, um, that there was very broad agreement that violent crime was out of control, that drugs were too widely available, and we needed to do something right, right now. I have had the blessing of serving in the Senate during the period when on the Judiciary Committee right in front of me, I've got John Cornyn and Mike Lee. You cannot be more legitimately conservative than John Cornyn of Texas, former Attorney General, Big John, and Mike Lee, who has got to be right. I mean, that's about as conservative as it gets on constitutional issues, legal, right? And they're partnering, right, with people like Sheldon Whitehouse or Dick Blumenthal or Chuck Schumer. And a whole group of us started working on bipartisan criminal justice reform now six years ago. And it had its first really concrete fruits in the First Step Act, which President Trump signed into law. And what has been wonderful and challenging was to watch the debate, first in the committee, then in the Congress, then nationally, about, you know, look, if you, if you give a win to the other side, then they can run on it and talk about it. And right. And President Trump is he is saying, hey, I got the first step Act signed into law. And there are Democrats who are saying we've made real progress on criminal justice reform. I am seeing and hearing the same moment on climate. I've had conversations in the last two years with evangelical and conservative faith leaders who are beginning to look at the changing climate as part of creation care, as part of our responsibility of stewardship and seeing that it is possible to move in a direction that recognizes climate change is real, human beings are causing it, and we have to do something about it. The Holy Father, the uh, Pope Francis, is himself speaking uh, repeatedly and doing outreach globally about the significance of climate change, A. B, I worked for, I trained as a chemist, I worked for a materials-based science company here in Delaware, and I remember 20 years ago hearing companies like DuPont talking about sustainability and reducing their impact and then letting engineers loose to come up with measurable outcomes. And I remember having conversations more recently with financial services leaders, people in the insurance industry, people in the home building industry, and now in the last year, CEOs of major oil and gas companies, the leadership of organizations like Business Roundtable and US Chamber of Commerce, they're all saying climate change is real, 
People are causing it, and we have to do something about it. And this year in the Climate Solutions Caucus, what has been thrilling to me is to have meeting after meeting, briefing after briefing, where folks are calling for us to put a price on carbon. And now, Senator Flake and I introduced a bipartisan carbon fee bill at the end of the last Congress, and I am grateful for Senator Flake's um, urgent leadership on that, his insistence on our getting it introduced before the end of his uh, service. I am hopeful that in this Congress, before it ends, we'll have another bipartisan carbon fee bill. Um, and I'm continuing to, to talk with and work with members of the Climate Solutions Caucus about what a broad and ambitious agenda would look like around um, combating climate through putting a price on carbon. So on that note, young people don't see this issue as a Republican or Democrat issue. And in fact, I think that they're frustrated that, and I know they're frustrated, that, it's come, that, it, that it comes across that way. We've also come across a lot of people as we've toured the country on this road trip who are in red states, who are conservative, Trump-supporting Republicans, who want action on climate as well. But they feel a little bit left behind. They feel like, you know, if, if you're from South Dakota or you're from rural Minnesota or you're you know, on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, that your voice doesn't really matter at the climate conversation. How can we do a better job of A, making this conversation less about the Republican and Democrat side and B, include kind of some of these communities that honestly oftentimes are more conservative that have been left out? So three things, if I can briefly. Um, first. Never underestimate that the single most important lobbyists are our own families. That the, the relationships of concern and affection that most move senators are our children and our grandchildren. Um, to have that, that first conversation I had with Mike Braun, he talked about the hundreds of acres of forest land that he is conserving in Indiana this is something he's been steadily building, a family-owned forest preserve over decades, and it's what he intends to leave to his children. And he talked about the conversations he's had with his four children and how, um, as the same is true with me, they are delivering a sense of urgency about climate and frankly, a sense of exhaustion with the way my generation has framed it. And they're basically saying, you are saying, Benji, Get over yourselves, find a way forward. That's what's going to get us moving. I could spend an hour litigating the ways in which my generation has defined this as a frozen conflict between climate deniers and climate activists. And there is a lot of built up resentment, bitterness and division over what we see as missed opportunities of 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And it doesn't move us forward at all. You weren't in the room for those conversations. You weren't part of the whole, you know, sort of petroleum-funded climate denier apparatus. And while I may have some residual resentment over all that and missed opportunities, it doesn't move us forward an inch. So I'm happy. No, I'm not happy. I am willing <laughs> to put down the tools and say, okay, Mike, you're willing to work with me. This is great. What are we going to get done? There are groups, bipartisan groups of senators who have tried five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And um, while the lessons of their attempts and failures are significant, we have to start again. 
Um, I do think there have been some absolutely critical uh, changes, both in the external world and in the politics of business and the business community and the faith community. Um, you know, this is unscientific, but millions of acres of forest land are burning in California. A record number of hurricanes are slamming into the Gulf Coast. When I was county executive here in this little county in Newcastle County, we had a 100-year flood, a 500-year flood, and a 100-year flood in three successive years that wiped out a whole neighborhood and led to the county and the state jointly spending $30 million relocating a whole neighborhood full of people who nearly got wiped out by an eight-foot wall of water that all of our models said shouldn't have happened. That was a wake-up call. Oh, and I took my children to Glacier National Park where we hiked to Grinnell Glacier to look at the massive puddle. So, yeah. It, it, it is apparent in everyday life in 2020. And, you know, it's not the future anymore that we need to be worried about solely. It's also the present. <laughs> and we have both to grapple with now because we've delayed this issue for so long. And I think that that's where a lot of the frustration from young people comes in. And, you know, for me as a young person who does lean conservative, one of the frustrations I have is that it has been used, in my opinion, as a political wedge issue to win elections. And, you know, I've seen conservatives who deserve to be endorsed by environmental organizations not be endorsed because they have an R next to their name. And I think that there is a problem there in the fact that you will need both sides at the table on this conversation, as, as we've done on other issues throughout history, to get any action across the finish line. And it's so frustrating to me that there are a, about a dozen bipartisan bills in the House and the Senate right now to combat climate change that won't get moved because people who aren't you don't want to give the other side a win. And I think that that speaks volumes as to what the problem has been for the last 20 years. And it's, it has to end. So a final question, because I know we're running out of time. Uh, but before we wrap up, I do have one other question about youth activism. Young people across the country are sick of the division on climate change, and they know it's a severe issue. They're marching in the streets, and they're making their voice heard. I testified at Congress with Greta Thunberg and talked about kind of our, my market-based solution idea and, and heard her ideas out as well. And I think there is this generational agreement that we need to act on climate. What do you think young activists can do to make their voice heard in a more impactful way? And what can they do differently in the next couple of years to really push some of these policies across the finish line, conservative or liberal? One of the biggest challenges in politics is combining um, righteous indignation, determination, and engagement, forceful, aggressive engagement with patience. Um, John Lewis was a personal friend, a colleague, and a hero to me. And if you look at the arc of his life, it is astonishing that a young man born in Troy um, in the midst of the most grinding racial oppression imaginable believed that it was possible that we would be um, a more just and less intolerant and less oppressive society. And if you look at the decades of his work and his sacrifice and his activism. He was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington in 1963. 
And he was the impatient, the energetic, the determined college kid who was part of the sit-ins, who was part of the Freedom Rides, who was part of Selma, and who actually helped make happen right, the Voting Rights Act. But he was also literally in the streets in Washington for Black Lives Matter protests just this past spring. So remember, the thing about, two things if I can, the thing about John that always struck me was that despite a lifetime of literally being beaten and bloodied and arrested, he approached these differences and these challenges with love and with forgiveness, with a remarkable spirit of a willingness to listen to and work with anyone who would repent of being committed to white supremacy or injustice. So he had a remarkably open and hopeful and optimistic heart. He was not patient, he was impatient. And I'd urge young activists to be impatient but also get smart about the tactics and the details. We need an all of the above strategy. We need to find ways to reward and incentivize farmers for practices that put carbon back into the soil and create financial rewards and incentives for better farming practices. We need to take advantage of carbon capture and sequestration and advanced modular nuclear. We have to have exportable technologies that will make climate change policies possible in countries like China and India. We can't do it ourselves, but we also need you to demand um, significant investment in innovation, in deployment at scale of renewable technologies. You can't do all of this with just one perspective. We really need everybody. So for any young person who's listening to this podcast, who's in a part of the country that seems to be out of the conversation, you're not. You're essential. On guns, we've seen a generation of young activists say, work this out. We ought to have background checks. We ought to have a respect for the Second Amendment and for gun ownership and safety in our schools and a more rational approach. I view climate the same way. There's an absolutely central role for conservatives to say climate change is real, people are causing it, and we demand action, but we also demand action that we can be a part of. So be hopeful, be impatient, be loving, but be smart and sustain your service on this. We need you in this fight. Thank you. That I couldn't have said it better myself, and that's the exact platform that we're working on with conservatives, and you're saying that as a liberal, and I think that there's a lot of inspiration just, like, within me right now. I just, like, I, it's just, it's inspiring to hear that. I mean, it truly is, and I do have hope, and I think we, instead of, as young people, pairing fear and impatience, we need to pair hope and impatience, like you had talked about, and you know, there is a lot of hope on this issue. There is an all the above approach. These issues are complex. They can't be solved via the, the, the four words that people can use on Twitter. Like th these issues are really, really complex and different solutions are needed for different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And you understand that and you're fighting for that. And I just, as a young person, want to thank you because you know, there are many people in Congress that you have served with currently and for and, and pa in the past that haven't looked at it in that way. And it's that you're actually kind of the 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 commodity in terms of of trying to look at this from a realistic perspective. And we need more people like you. And so I hope that we can continue working together. And before we wrap up, 
we have about half of our trip left across the country until election day, which seems close and also yet so far away. What advice do you have for us as we travel across the country? And what do you hope we find as we head south and then back west? I hope you will find um, that the people of this nation actually believe um, in the possibility of progress and of change. Uh, my uh, dear friend, Michael Bennett, who's a senator from Colorado, we went to law school together. Um, our families are friends. Um, when he came back from his ultimately unsuccessful campaign for the presidency, I asked Michael, well, what did, what did, you, what did you learn? What did you see going all over the country and doing you know, town halls? And he said, you know what? The, the false division we have here in the Senate where we've got these like sharply drawn lines and it's right and it's left and it's, you know, you're right and I'm wrong. That's just not how the average American sees it. And he said, I'm much more optimistic about the country and about the average American and about how they actually believe that we can make progress by listening to each other and compromising. And I am much less patient with this Senate and with the structures and with the ways in which it's not working and we're not delivering the results the American people deserve. And he said, so on some level, it is harder than ever to serve here in this broken institution that isn't getting the job done. But I'm more convinced than ever that the American people if we just listen to them, have the answers, and the answers are in the middle, not at the extremes. This is incredibly powerful. I'm sitting here in your home state as a Republican young person with a Democrat senator talking about, and honestly, I don't know if I could like combat anything that you said because you talked about everything that we believe, carbon capture, nuclear, renewables, technology, innovation, sustainable farming. I mean. This is the future, and this road trip has proven everything, proven the importance of everything that you talked about. And I'm sitting here with you, unable to disagree with pretty much anything that you just said. There's a lot of power in that, and we did it during 2020. We're less than a month away before the uh, of the election. I don't even know what to say other than the fact that I'm hopeful from this conversation. I know that we can do a lot together going forward. We obviously are pushing conservative colleagues to do more on these issues. I think we've been helpful in getting people like Mike Braun to the table, who have been amazing champions. And we're going to continue doing this fight, but we can't do it without you, and you can't do it without us. And we need to lean on each other, because 2021 is coming up quick, and there's a lot we need to do to solve climate change in 2021 and beyond, and hopefully before the end of this year as well. So. I, I just, I'm so thankful for your time, Senator Coons, and we are in Wilmington, Delaware for another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip, possibly my favorite one yet. I don't mean to pick favorites, but I'm so thankful for your time, appreciate it, and cannot wait to share this with the viewers. Thanks to our viewers for tuning in, and hope you tune in to the next episode of the Electric Election Road Trip, which we will be going south to the D.C. area.